Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a lot of eyes being turned towards downtown Hamilton and that area that we call the Entertainment District. P.J. McCanny from the Carmen's Group joins us to talk about that. As cutbacks and savings are made by governments, the need for help does not disappear. We'll talk with somebody from the Good Shepherd about the impact that's having in this community. As the federal Tory leadership race continues, people are asking if Peter McKay is the runaway choice to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. We'll delve into that issue as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we mentioned, uh, interestingly enough, the uh, downtown revitalization and uh, what they call the entertainment precinct uh, is uh, front and center at City Council. Last week, we uh, talked to Mario Frankovich, who is uh, working with the the Rancor Group uh, with their proposal for what they'd like to see happening downtown. Uh, I think we've covered in pretty good detail what uh, Michael Andlar wanted to do. Uh, with the folks at Cadillac Fairview at Lime Ridge Mall, and uh, he didn't get any interest at all from City Council on that. But uh, there is another group that is interested, and they're going to be making a presentation to City Council later on this week, too. Uh, one of the members of that is uh, P.J. Mercandy, who, of course, is the CEO of the Carmen's Group, and he joins us here in studio to uh, talk a little bit about uh, what they're going to be talking about and what uh, they'd like to get Council to get interested in. Uh, thanks for coming in today, by the way. Well, thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. Well, listen, uh, as I just mentioned, you guys uh, at the Carmen's Group have planted your flag a long time ago when the city was looking for help with the entertainment facilities. You jumped on board, and uh, you took a tired uh, and, and not so efficient uh, con- convention center downtown, and you've made that work, but uh, you- you're, you're expanding your horizons now. What, what, what's First of all, who is your group, and what are you looking for here? So, uh, Bill, thanks for the question, and, and simply, we're blessed that we've got a great team working with us. Uh, you know, obviously, Carmen's Group is proud to be the operator of the Hamilton Convention Center right now, and we're proud of our track record there, where we've managed to grow revenues 42% since taking over and have eliminated the operating subsidy at the venue. But the true strength of, 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 of what we're doing is the team. We've got a great team that we're working alongside, uh, you know, powerful uh, groups like Leuna Pension Fund, Fengay Capital. We're working with Meridian Credit Union, who's very invested in, in this project and in the future of downtown Hamilton. Uh, Jetport and the Joyce family have been supporters of, of this initiative. And we've recently added another, uh, another powerful group. Uh, uh, group, uh, the Paletta family, Paletta International, uh, Angelo, Michael, Paul, uh, Remy Paletta, and, and their family. So we're proud of, of alignments with these, uh, these you know, incredible uh, organizations uh, who are invested in Hamilton, committed to Hamilton. And we've also aligned our efforts with uh, a few other notable organizations and institutions. Uh, we've, uh, you know, uh, signed an LOI, a letter of intent, with Daryl Furston, who's the new owner of the Hamilton City Center. Yeah, we met him on our program a couple of weeks ago just after they announced and, the sale. And he has uh, tremendous visions and is very excited about uh, downtown Hamilton and is excited to work with our group because there's certainly alignment and synergies in, in, in his project, in our project. And uh, and we've also had some good discussions with the Art Gallery of Hamilton, with Shelley, and, and we're hoping that our efforts can help with their expansion plans. And so we've got a great community-minded team, a team with, uh, with integrity, uh, a team with uh, the capital to be able to deploy for uh, for big projects, exciting projects, visionary projects, and so Carmen's group, we're we're pre- just happy to be at this table to help push this initiative forward. Uh, years ago, many of the individuals and organizations that I mentioned helped to fund a study uh, that was prepared by mm-hmm. BBB back in 2015, 2016, and we were happy to do so. Even though at that time it was done as a as a good community gesture. Uh, we, you know, that very report is actually useful today for the for the efforts that we're, you know, and initiatives we're pushing forward. 
and BBB is a, is a great architecture firm that we're proud to align with as well, seeing that they were responsible for the design of the ACC. They did the renovation project at Madison Square Garden. So there's certainly a, a group you'd want to be aligned with. And so we're happy to have a, a, a very impressive team working with Carmen's group uh, and, and, and al- alongside us, uh, you know, in this, uh, in this effort. And, and we're, you know, excited to move forward, you know, w- when the city is ready. All right. I know you can't get into too many specifics now. And as a matter of fact, you want to save some of that, I know, for your presentation to council. But try to give us an overview here. There are three basic entities here that we're talking about here, uh, that being the Convention Center, which you're totally familiar with, of course. Uh, First Ontario Concert Hall, which is Hamilton Place, and of course the arena itself. now, there are stacks and stacks of, of consultant reports that the City Council has done over this the last year, little while, uh, which seem to indicate that, uh, that these are tired facilities in need of help. Maybe not so much the concert hall. I think that just needs a coat of paint and a little sprucing up, but it's, it's functional the way it is. What about the other two facilities? The convention center, I know you and I have talked about mm-hmm. this in the past. It's outdated. It's too small for the kind of things that we need to do to for make sure. it efficient right now. So I would think that's got to go, but talk to us about your plans for that building and for the arena. Sure. Uh, so with the convention center, you are right. It, it is too small for the needs uh, of Hamilton today and the growing Hamilton, the future of Hamilton, mm-hmm. Hamilton 2.0, downtown 2.0. So we well, anybody to- that's traveled, and I know you have, I mean, you know, I've been to Winnipeg, to Ottawa, to, to Calgary, and I mean... This place is a relic, the Hamilton Convention Center. I know it was, it was great for its time back when it was built, but it's just not functional in the 21st century. It's outlived its useful life. It's 40 years old, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the it's it's ready for, you know, we're ready for a new convention center. And, and at the end of the day, we need to have a convention facility that can fit 2,000 to 25 people in a uh, 2,500 people in a ballroom, uh, a much larger exhibition space for trade shows and, and booths, uh, etc., and better overall configuration, uh, layout configuration. And so we've been working with PricewaterhouseCoopers on a, on a plan and have invested substantial funds into this study by PwC on how do we get to a new convention center. And, and we're, we're just about there. The, the study is almost done. And so we do have a financial roadmap to get us to a new convention center. And we would want to make sure that a new convention center in Hamilton leans into the unique identity of Hamilton. We would make sure that there is... Uh, that we pay homage to the industrial roots, to the artistic heritage of Hamilton. So we would have a very unique design that leans into who Hamilton is. We'd also have a few unique amenities as well. We would want to have a uh, a covered uh, outdoor um, canopied uh, space uh, similar to what we have at uh, at our C Hotel, an outdoor terrace, so to speak, So which would be really unique. Uh, you know, within a convention uh, facility that uh, that you know other other convention centers don't have it uh, features like this. So we've looked at what they've done in Halifax, in Winnipeg, and there is a financing model for new convention centers. Build Canada, through an infrastructure arm of the federal government, supports initiatives like this. Provincial governments support initiatives like this on a, on a funding formula, uh, similar to schools, hospitals, etc. So we feel very confident. We've had very good discussions with MPP Skelly and with um, MP Philomena Tassi about this. And so both seem very supportive of helping us move this initiative forward. So we feel very confident. Now, when you say supportive, do you mean 
financially? Correct. Okay. Correct. And, and helping navigate us through the process of getting uh, the, the various levels of government on side. And, and we're very delighted that we've forged a partnership with uh, Daryl Firstnet at the, at the city center. Uh, he's agreed that, uh, that if we can make it all work in, in the next short little while, that a convention center could potentially go on the site of the existing city center or a portion of it. And we believe that a convention center right on James Street North uh, it fits in well with the Hamilton hospitality and art scene. That's a that's become a hospitality and or, an art corridor. And if we have a, a convention facility that leans into that, that would be absolutely outstanding for the future of Hamilton. And then our vision is on the site of the existing convention center to build a new condo. Uh, hotel tower that that you know meshes well with the art gallery that helps them with their expansion efforts. So we've got a very visionary uh, a concept that we are looking forward to presenting to council on Wednesday around this, and uh, and we're ready to push this initiative forward. What about the arena now? Let's talk about that. The the studies and there have been, as I mentioned, dozens of them done. It seems anyway. Uh, and and they, they've, they've, they've run the gamut here. They've, they've talked about knock this one down, build something brand new, uh, renovate this one, uh, do something with this. Clearly, the way it is right now is it's not feasible for the main tenant, which is the, the Bulldogs, of course. Uh, but it's also a tired old building, too. What do you see there? Are you, do you want a new arena, or are you, you going to try to work with the bones of the one you've got? So the, the ultimate uh, reality, I believe, is that the path of least resistance is an arena transformation project. And, and you know, many groups have come in and, and said what you've just said, that, uh, that it's tired and, and it needs, uh, needs a lot of investment to bring it up to a, a much more, um, a, a better standard, and a standard that, uh, that's entertainments and hockey patrons today are used to. And so our plan contemplates a, uh, a you know, significant transformation of the arena consistent with messaging from council and Ernst and Young uh, as it relates to, you know, really modernizing the lower bowl, still having the upper bowl accessible for big concerts. Obviously, Pearl Jam is going to be here in a few weeks, months, and uh, and no doubt that will be, you know, that will be a, a sold out show. And so for events like that and events like uh, the Junos and the Canadian, Canadian Country Music Awards, uh, having that upper bowl is, is, is very important, but we need to make sure that we modernize the space. And we've got, our, as part of our plan, we have a, a few unique activation ideas where we want to really create some unique spaces within the facility that lean into certain cultural assets of Hamilton that we'll be sharing a bit more with council on Wednesday. Uh, so we've got a few a few cultural activation ideas and hospitality activation ideas, ideas of engaging the broader hospitality community in Hamilton to be a part of the future FNB to a degree <clears throat> at the arena. And so we see a transformed project and really maximizing what could be done on Bay and York. Uh, there's no, it's no surprise that there's a lot of, lot of space along Bay and York that could be repurposed, reimagined, re-envisioned. And, uh, and we certainly intend to bring that plan forward and lean into the great work that BBB did back in 2016. There was a lot of good uh, work that they, that they did on the interior and what needs to be done uh, and what can be done for certain dollars. And so we certainly intend to, to, to use that BBB study. We've also spent another couple hundred thousand dollars in, with PwC and other uh, engineering firms and consulting groups uh, on, on how to maximize the arena and the convention space. So, so we're excited to share our vision and plan in the coming days. All right. So when you make this presentation, uh, and you're, you've been pretty active in this, uh, what are you looking for from city council? We're essentially uh, asking city council 
to lay out the parameters of what they want to see done uh, as it relates to the, to the future of these facilities. We didn't want to be presumptive and, and just assume the city wanted to do this, that, or the other. We want to hear from the city as it relates to what their timeline is, what they would like to see. We want to know what the criteria is uh, that we need to s- uh, provide a submission. Obviously, we sent a uh, an unsolicited term sheet to the city. Very simplistic. You know, it was a four or five page document. So we would love the opportunity to, to flush that out further. And and then ultimately ask the city uh, to give us an opportunity to to go in the ring in an RFP or in a, in, a, in a process of some sort where we can provide and lay out the full detail and share how this will be a big win for the taxpayers of Hamilton. Our plan contemplates the elimination of operating and capital subsidies. It contemplates the investment into these facilities and a new tax base for Hamilton. So so our plan is an, a, a tremendous net economic positive for the taxpayer of Hamilton that leverages private sector investment both into downtown and in these facilities. And we just want to have the opportunity to be able to to bid on this and to move forward uh, in, a, in a formal process uh, and, and just learning more about the process. So let's just be clear on this now. You want to build these things? Do you want to own them or do you just want to build them and then operate them for the city? So that's a negotiation uh, element that we want to have with the, or discussion that we want to have with the so city. So you're open to either one? We're open to either one and, and you know, respecting that if the city wants to get, you know, to unload these assets... If, if that's a key criteria, then we certainly will will uh, will be open to that. If they want to retain ownership of these assets, that's a you know. So this is where we want to hear back from the city as to what does it want to achieve with these uh, with these assets and work with them in a in a proper you know format and 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 forum and criteria and 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 then respond accordingly. But our group is open to either. We're certainly open to exploring either option. One consistent thing that all these consultant reports talked about is none of this is going to work unless there is a, a an anchor tenant for that arena uh who would your anchor tenant be well we you know we've obviously respected uh, over the course of the last few uh few months since the last year uh you know michael landlauer and the bulldogs as it relates to you know their plans with the arena and so you know we respectfully pivoted to to ensure that they had a lane to pursue that and obviously we pursued uh you know deep convention plans and so the goal would be to have you know two significant tenants, uh, one being an entertainment tenant, another being a, a sport tenant. So I think that is absolutely critical to the future viability of any any arena project. And uh, and so, you know, we would certainly welcome the opportunity when the time is right uh, to, to engage in discussions with, with Michael, Peggy, and the entire Bulldogs organization. We have tremendous respect for Michael, for Peggy. Uh, one of our partners, Leuna, is a, a tremendous sponsor of the Bulldogs organization. We, Carmen's group, work with the, the Bulldogs Foundation uh, and, and, and support each other through the Charity of Hope and through their breakfast program. So we've got nothing but utmost respect and appreciation for for that organization and would welcome the opportunity to chat when the time is right. I just got a few seconds left here. We've talked to Michael at great length about his concerns and, and what he'd like to see happen. And uh, we already know what happened with the Lime Ridge proposal with CF, and that's obviously off the table as far as the city is concerned anyway. But one of the major concerns he has is timing. Sure. Uh, he says he can't wait another five or six years. I mean, he's been very patient, more than patient, of course, over the last number of years. But something's got to happen sooner than later. How can you accommodate that? 
that concern. So if it, once the city provides direction as it relates to what it wants to see done first, and, and obviously I think the, the arena is the priority, then our group would certainly plan to mobilize quickly on, on, on pushing forward the, 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 the plans for that. You know, I, I had an opportunity a few weeks ago uh, to to have discussions with folks at the Bulldogs office and I and they and they they shared that the uh, a, a ribbon cutting in in the next few years is a priority and so we would certainly work towards uh, achieving that priority if given the opportunity to work with them you know we we certainly uh, you know know that the city has to move forward with a process and and uh, and so we would be delighted to be uh, at the table as it relates to helping uh, work on that arena transformation project and and working with uh, all the potential tenants to to make it come to life. Well, it's uh, kind of a feast or famine situation, I guess, for the city here. I mean, a couple of years ago, they couldn't draw flies to get anybody to be interested in this. Now you're into this. Uh, it looks like Rancor wants to get involved in this as well. Uh, you're involved in the Commonwealth uh, bid game, and in, the, in your spare time, you run a banquet hall in a hotel. So, <laughs> sure. Uh, it's I, I, I applaud you. I applaud the Rancor group for stepping forward and the groups that are, are working with you on all this too. My concern, and I think your concern an awful lot of people have right now, is city council. So we'll see how they respond later on this week. Oh, for sure. Thanks so much, PJ. No problem. Thank you, Bill. PJ Mercandy from the Carmen's Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Cause and effect. Uh, we're going to talk about that in great detail and how it's impacting you. Now, of course, we know the city council is dealing with the budget and trying to put the final uh, workings on that. Uh, there's going to be a tax increase, and just to a person almost, every one of those councillors is saying, well, we're going to do our best to make sure you don't have to pay as much tax as you really should or want to or whatever the case might be. But that means less service. And it means that when the city or the province or the federal government decides to back away from some of the things that we think they should be helping us with, it falls to others to try to pick up the ball if they possibly can, and that includes health care. Uh, we've already talked with the folks at St. Joe's and Hamilton Health Sciences about how they are strained right now because they're just not getting as much money as they should to run those services. But also charitable organizations in the city are very, very wrung out right now uh, because, first of all, you and I as citizens don't seem to be giving as much as we do it in the past, and their services are, are being strained. And it's, it's a real problem for this community. And while the government may just say, well, you know, we're saving ourselves a few bucks, there's an argument to be made, and I think a very legitimate argument to be made, that it's going to cost us all a lot more in the long run. Joining us to talk about this is Brother Richard McPhee, Executive Director, of course, of uh, the Good Shepherd. Richard, uh, been a long time. Thanks so much for the time today. Morning, Bill. Good. Good to speak to you. Well, we need to have this conversation, Richard, and, and I think people have to understand uh, the impact of, of some of these decisions made by governments to pull back on funding or to download or whatever the case may be. And for every person that becomes disadvantaged, every person that becomes homeless, uh, every person that uh, that has to go to a food bank, uh, it's organizations like yours, the Good Shepherd, and others that have to pick up the ball if they can. Yeah, it's true, Bill. Um, we're seeing unprecedented numbers both in our food bank and in our shelters. Uh, the shelter system in Hamilton is running at over 100% capacity on any given night. And we're even struggling to be able to put extra mats on the floor to be able to house folks. And I know in our own food bank that we're seeing an additional 200 families a month uh, who are coming to us uh, because really now many people who are on some kind of fixed income really don't even get to make the choice of whether to pay the rent or to buy food. Really, there's never even enough money to buy to pay for the rent. And that's been a systemic effect, whether it's keeping up with the rents in our community, the gentrification or the rent evictions that have been happening. 
and just the challenges of finding decent, affordable housing and the, the fact that decent, affordable housing hasn't been built for a long time or has been built in, in dribs and drabs. Richard, where are you as far as, as, as the, the pressure on you to serve the, the community and those services? Uh, the, you know, we don't hear about lineups to get into some of these sales, but they do exist. I mean, you, you hate to have to say no to somebody. Sorry, we don't have enough room. Sorry, uh, we can't take in, uh, you know, your family. Sorry, uh, uh, you're in an abusive situation, but there's no room in the shelter right now. It's, it's a difficult time for everybody. Yeah, Bill, you know, I particularly, let's just talk about abused women and children. Um, all our domestic violence shelters are over, uh, over capacity, and what's happening right now is that the shelter system really on the backs of the city of Hamilton at this present point is putting people in uh, hotels because there is not enough room in shelters and domestic violence shelters themselves belong within the purview of the provincial government. The issue of homelessness is with families is growing with the number of evictions that are see, we're seeing and also just the fact that families can't find housing. And so what's happening is on any given night we may have up to 12 to 20, to 20 families in emergency in in hotels and really sometimes that's even precarious because of the hotel numbers that we have in hamilton when we have big events or anything like that those people then scramble to try to find a place to live and it's it's a really uh, unknown story but really it's a story that agencies like the good shepherd are dealing with every day as we try to those who find themselves homeless in our community. Well, and there's, a, of course, an extension of that as well. Even if you are allowed to, and able to put somebody in a hotel for a period of time, they can't stay there. Uh, even the people in the in the shelters, I mean, those that are victims of abusive behavior from, from whomever, uh, they can't stay there forever either. Eventually, they've got to find affordable housing, and it just doesn't seem to be there, Richard. It, that's for sure, Bill. Um, we know that there's a long wait list in terms of the affordable housing list, even though we know that women and children who are victims of violence are priority on that list. The reality is that priority can be six or eight months away. And so that's a real challenge for organizations like us in terms of when the people come to us looking for a place because they, they need to flee a, a domestic violence situation. And we find ourselves scrambling to find a place for them so that they can be safe. Well, And I think the other part of it is that recognizing that our shelter workers are really sometimes really those first responders that are responding to the emergencies and the crises that we're dealing with every single day in our shelters. The, and what we're pointing to here is, is, I mean, we can spend an awful lot of time outlining exactly some of the challenges and how critical the, the need is. But this really comes down to government, doesn't it? I mean, at some point, we look to government to try to, to, to look after us as a, as a society and as a community. And when governments start talking about austerity and cost savings and we're going to try to cut this program and cut this program, it all filters down to, to the agencies like yours. Yeah, we end up being a default system for the system. And so that it really is challenging sometimes when you've got somebody who is in need of medical care, but in fact isn't sick enough to be in a hospital, but doesn't have a place to receive that care because they're homeless, and then they, they come to shelters. It's a challenge in terms of just dealing with the number of folks that have a psychiatric or addiction disability today. Those are all folks that come, end up in emergency shelters, and the challenge is what we don't, we're not resourced to be able to look after those folks 
but are expected to do so because they really have nowhere else to turn to. Well, and there's two elements to this, too. And We're not really here to point fingers, but, I mean, we need to, I think, acknowledge some of the realities here. Uh, first of all, agencies like yourselves and others that say, look, we've got to do something about this, uh, and you develop a plan. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the beautiful complex that you built on King Street West a, a number of years ago, but the community's got to be part of this, too. I mean, I still remember. I was on city council when you came forward with that plan so many years ago, Richard. And and there was so much pushback from the community. I mean, the, this NIMBY, we don't want these sorts of things in our neighborhoods. We don't want them. The community demands that we have to do something like this. There are people in need, yet so many people just seem to turn their back and say, sure, but don't do it here. Do it someplace else. Yeah, people don't want it until they need it, Bill. Uh, yeah. Or they or a loved one that they know that needs it, and and it's not whether it's a women and children or whether it's the elderly, uh, particularly in terms of our elderly uh, population. We've seen how the needs of people who are aging in our community are in need of a place to stay, a need of the support programs that programs like Good Shepherd runs, but other organizations run. But the reality is that affordability isn't there. Yes, the private market has responded to some of those people, but not everybody's got $10,000 a month to be look, to be look after an elderly person. Well, and that's one element. The other element, of course, is what we just mentioned a second ago, and that is government. And I don't mean municipal government, although they do have a role to play here. But as we've talked about, uh, as the council's gone through their budget process here, property tax is, is really the most regressive tax around because it's not based on your ability to pay, uh, and, and it's somewhat problematic. So when you have to go back and say your property taxes are going up, people that are on fixed incomes uh, and other situations uh, may end up turning to somebody like you, Richard, and say, look, we can't do this anymore. Uh, we need the help. The senior levels of government really need to step up and, and, and be a part of the solution here, not part of the problem. They absolutely do, Bill. Um, I think the reality of affordable housing, the issue of support programs to allow people to live in the community, many of the policies that previous governments have with deinstitutionalization and uh, providing care in the community have not seen the dollars following from the institutions to the community at large, and then on top of it, the struggle of institutions just to be able to maintain their own level of care and the complexity of care that we see each and every day today. And, and the rationale for this is really quite simple. I mean, those those two levels of government, federal and provincial in this case, uh, yeah, that there's tax dollars involved in this, but uh, the impact that it would have on you, me as citizens, would be minimal as opposed to uh, somebody's increasing property tax. In other words, it's spreading out uh, the, the cost over the whole population, not just a, a certain part of the community. Um, and, and there are there are other jurisdictions, Richard, aren't there, where they, they, they do this. They do look after those that need help. And, uh, yeah, you pay a little bit more tax, but let's let's talk about not doing this and, and the problems. We've talked about overcrowding in hospitals. We've talked about overcrowding in shelters. Uh, there's some social concerns about this as well that I know the Good Shepherd knows all too well because you try to address them, and that's uh, youth violence, it's illness. It's There's a number of different things that are going on that have an adverse effect on the community. Yeah, Bill, I think we've said time and time again, both at the city council and to our provincial colleagues, that the challenges are really somebody's going to pay somewhere. And so often that is if they don't pay within the hospital system, they pay within the community system or EMS response or emergency room response. They, if they don't pay there, they pay in, often in, in uh, provincial or uh, municipal jails where 
folks are incarcerated for crimes that really they shouldn't be there for because of a mental health issue. And so, or, and we constantly see this vicious cycle and have tried to address that of the cost of what it really means when somebody shows up many different doors because really the right response is not in place. And so often it's really about coordinating those responses and to be able to make sure that uh, we collectively together can in fact look after those who are in need in our community. And, and the government's got to understand that. I mean, there's a simple math equation here is you can't spend less and expect a better result uh, when it comes to supplying services for the community. It just doesn't happen that way. Well, it does. And I think the other part of it is, is that even in the less, we, we end up with more sophistication than what we had before. We see that in healthcare. Uh, we have more and more types of, of, of uh, equipment and things like that that people need to prevent them becoming a more uh, challenging individual on on uh, on the healthcare system, you know, whether it's an MRI or which is less intrusive than something else that may in fact require surgery. So I think we've come a long way, and I think we do that. We see that even in some of the situations that we see, sometimes it really can be as simple as I'll just give you an example of somebody who's living with uh, obstructive lung disease because they worked in a factory in Hamilton and now they live in a house and they don't have air conditioning and their really uh, breathing difficulties are there and really what the response needs to be is as simple as helping that person maybe with an air, a window air conditioning unit as opposed to sending them to an emergency room and treating them there. Richard, do people, and I will exclude the politicians for a second here, but do people in general able to connect the dots here? Do they understand that the, the, the crisis situation, and I think it is a crisis situation, that we face here when it comes to social services and health care uh, has an impact. I mean, you know, we talk about the, the concern about gun violence. We talk about the opioid crisis and addiction problems. And, and they're, they're not the, the only cause, but they're contributing and a major contributing cause to an awful lot of the social problems that we're facing now. Um, I think that people are aware of them, but I still think that some people still think that it's not going to affect me it's not going to affect my family, or or it doesn't it doesn't touch me personally until they have to go to go to the doors of various parts of the our healthcare social service system, whether it's with an elderly person in terms of trying to access long term care or care in their home, the whole issue of respite care for family caregivers, the the, the challenges that we also see um, in terms of mental health and addiction services. I, I was uh, going across the states uh, to get a plane to go to a meeting in the States uh, recently, and I saw uh, a, a, a billboard that said, have you asked your uncle about his opium addiction today, or his opioid addiction? I think we don't recognize that some of the challenges that we're seeing in, uh, on our streets and in our communities are happening actually within our own homes. It's 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 awfully frustrating. I understand that, but I mean, I, I think we have to address the concerns and the problems that are going on in the community right now, and understand that when governments say that we're going to spend less money, uh, somebody has to pay the price for it. And, and you know, and it's it's unfortunately these social services are the ones that seem to have the the the, the greatest problem and the greatest pressure on them right now as a result. Yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons, Bill, too, is that we happen to be. Uh, fragmented, I think, in terms of the funding responses to our agencies, whether, you know, what various ministries are involved. Some often those ministries or, or different levels of government don't talk. I think that we want to, they make decisions that may affect one part of a, a government when, when, in fact, if we did something different, it really could benefit all. 
I think the other part of it that we struggle with, Bill, is that um, governments don't uh, understand the the immense kind of services that emergency shelters and emergency agencies are being asked to do today. Uh, the, the challenge is there both at the, the, the issue of employment, employment and compensation to staff, recognizing that they are the people that are on the front line, line, uh, lines delivering these services, but also just the, num- the sheer volumes of number of people that are showing up at our agencies by default. And, and that's really a big concern that we've been pressing to, particularly our municipal, uh, the municipal staff, that we can't continue to do what we're doing with the resources that we've got. And that needs, something has to change. Well, we just had discussions with some folks from the United Way. They're starting off their uh, rather aggressive campaign, their fundraising campaign. Uh, and uh, th- that's one of the other elements of this, too. I mean, you're relying so much now, Richard, you and, and other agencies here in town, on, on the benevolence of, of we the people uh, to try to dip into our pockets to try to help. But it's it's fair to say that donations are down all over the place right now because a lot of people are kind of pinching nickels themselves. Uh, so there's a, there's a really a, a steamroller effect in play here, isn't there? Absolutely. I think that the, the reality that we are, we're dealing with is that the donor today is a very different donor than the donor of yesterday. The f- person who historically might have seen their mom and their mother feed somebody who was homeless during the Depression or, or after the Depression, after the war, in their own kitchen, and then is modeling that behavior that they learned at home. It's a very different kind of giving today, and it's much more targeted. It's much more driven by uh, by specific needs, and some of the basic kinds of feed, clothing, and sheltering individuals isn't always seen as, quote, sexy. But really, those are the survival responses that need to be in place so that people can, in fact, weather the storms that happen in their lives. Well, uh, one of the eye-opening statistics, of course, is, and I know you've talked about this, we've talked about this with the United Way, too, or you say you don't care about it, you don't think about it until you need it. Uh, the number of people that are touched by some of these services at some point in their lives, or somebody in their family, uh, it can happen to anybody. I mean, you're, you're one, you know, job firing away, you're one, you know, pay decrease away from, from actually having to get to a food bank or any number of other things like that. I mean, we, we've got to take that into consideration, too that uh, it, we might be next, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty frightening experience. Uh, it is, and we see that every day. We see that with people who have lost many things in their lives and for a variety of reasons, and our challenge as an organization is to be a place of hope and, and a place that says to people that we have faith in them and that we can support them to move forward. Richard, uh, thank you once again for the time today. Thank you for the great work that you and the Good Shepherd uh, do in so many different facets of this community. And uh, the more we talk about this, hopefully uh, somebody at Queen's Park, somebody in Parliament Hill will come to the realization that they've got to step up here. Uh, We'll keep talking about it, and hopefully one of those those days it's going to happen. Thanks again. Thanks, Bill. We can only hope. Brother Richard McPhee, Executive Director of the Good Shepherd. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, as uh, we've talked about on the program, uh, the conservative federal conservative party, of course, will be electing a new leader later on this year in the springtime after uh, Andrew Shearer announced that he was stepping down shortly after uh, the provincial or the federal election, of course, that happened last October. Uh, with that stunning defeat, a lot of people actually thought, to use the old analogy, the, he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, that being Shearer. Uh, he stepped down. Uh, former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, Peter McKay, who's at this point anyway retired from politics, uh, uttered that comment that I think has really stuck with Mr. Shearer, and that's uh, 
the analogy that uh, it's it's like Mr. Shear had a breakaway against an open net and fired wide. Uh, a lot of people seem to concur with that assessment. But so it was not really surprising too much later after that that uh, when Shear stepped down, that uh, well Peter McKay threw his hat in the ring. I can't take a pass or look away when our country is at stake, while this government makes life harder for our citizens. I can't stand by and hope someone else will do the job that needs to be done. And so, I'm here to stand up with you and do my part to help unite this country, to put shoulder to the wheel, and with others, to help us build a better life for all. Peter McKay, who is the uh, acknowledged frontrunner, I guess. Aaron O'Toole is up there, of course, and there are a couple of other names that uh, are coming in. Uh, but this has become a race that uh, seems to be more famous now for the people that decided not to run. But McKay, as the frontrunner, uh, in many people's eyes, is simply going to go through this process and, and be crowned as the leader without a whole lot of fight. Uh, Michael Tobe, our good friend, uh, had a great op-ed piece in the Toronto Star yesterday uh, suggesting that the near coronation of Peter McKay could be disastrous for the Tories. Michael, of course, is uh, with Troy Media, syndicated columnist and also contributor to the Washington Times, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Michael, good to have you on. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Read with great interest the piece that the Star published yesterday. Uh, explain the rationale for this, because I, I, I think a lot of people, as you point out in the article, are thinking this is really a, a done deal. McKay's going to be the guy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Some of the reaction I received yesterday, everyone's trying to obviously create a scenario where that's not the case, but... It is. As of right now, um, and, and look, there's still about six months left to go before the actual leader is picked, and there's still a few weeks to go before the February 27th deadline for applications. But if everything stayed the way it is currently now, and not, and not too many other big-name or major candidates ran, Peter McKay is right now heading into a scenario which I believe is very close to what you would call a near-coronation. You're right, Aaron O'Toole and others are running against him, so obviously there will be some competition, and I think O'Toole will certainly try very hard if he turns out to be the only other major candidate to give McKay a real run for his money. But the way things currently stand right now, Peter McKay has, first he's paid his $300,000 fee to do all, you know, to run, to be a leadership candidate and all that. He did it within days, so obviously he's raising money very quickly. He's piling up endorsements of... MPs, MPPs, MLAs, old party staffers, senior conservatives, etc. So now there's a lot of people who are starting to coalesce around him. Plus, as well, his organization is growing. He has lots of volunteers, lots of grassroots supporters, and a lot of people from all around, you know, all across the political spectrum. Not everybody who's supporting him is a red Tory or a left-leaning conservative. There are quite a few Tories who would be called well, conservatives would be called blue Tories or right-leaning conservatives, they've come out in support of him. This includes senators, MPs, and others. So what is starting to happen now, and again, this may change as time goes along, it, they are all starting to hover around McKay. McKay is becoming the chosen leader, the person that they feel can best suit them or suit their purposes for the next few years while they sit in opposition in the House of Commons and to lead them forward into possibly, you know, the next election and then possibly into government. However, in, in my piece in the Toronto Star, I made the point that a near coronation is not a good thing, as I'm sure we'll discuss, because if conservatives think back to the last time someone was almost coronated, that being Kim Campbell, it didn't work out very well for us. Yeah, as you mentioned in the piece, you've seen this show before, haven't you? Yes. 
I've seen it as well. You know, it's interesting. Some of the comments that people are coming up with with Kim Campbell is very, very fascinating. They're all sort of revisiting a period of history and trying to explain what happened. But, you know, Bill, even though I wasn't a, a big name, I was far from it, I was there, and a lot of people were there in, in 1993 when this all happened. And I remember the people who ran Campbell's campaign, Jim Edwards' campaign, and various others. There were a lot of things going on at that time. And sure, Jean Charest did run against her, and you know a lot of people who were linked with then or soon to be outgoing former Pri uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, a lot of them did sort of move towards Jean Charest's campaign. But for a period of time, Kim Campbell, when she declared that she was going to run, looked absolutely unstoppable. About half the caucus backed her really quickly. Big name candidates who were thinking of running at the time. Pat Carney, Perrin Beatty, Joe, uh, Joe Clark, names that will mean something to a lot of the listeners, they all dropped out pretty fast. And the reason was they realized what was happening. There was a freight train running, and it was all going towards Kim Campbell. But when you think back now on it, especially after, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit about it, how Kim Campbell, you know, anytime she ever opened her mouth, Bill, she just ruined herself. Interviews, speeches, just horrendous things that she said. She, the woman just has no filter. She still has no filter to this day. And it sort of all now makes sense when you look back and think about it, that a woman who had won her first federal seat in the Vancouver Center riding by a mere 269 votes, but more interestingly, had finished dead last, as in 12th out of 12 in the candidates running for the British Columbia Social Credit Party leadership race, suddenly became, because of this euphoric rise and, and people sort of coalescing around her, believing she could be the next Margaret Thatcher or something to that effect, she became briefly Canada's 19th Prime Minister. And when you look back on it more than 27 years later, you just sort of sit to yourself and think, my God, what a ridiculous scenario that was. Well, and in, in the piece, uh, you point out some of the rather infamous uh, quotes uh, that uh, she is famous for. Uh, for instance, uh, calling people that don't get involved in the political process apathetic SOBs. Yes. Probably the one that she's, she's uh, going to be on her gravestone it's, uh, when, uh, is that an election is no time to talk about policy. I mean, that, <laughs> and, and I know that you know, that's, that's something that just seems to resonate. It gets brought up every time there's an election, and that's her. She owns that. Yeah, she did. No, I didn't include that one in my piece, but you're right. That was one she was known for. She even made a comment in the same one where he made the first quote from the apathetic SOBs, which she told to uh, Peter C. Newman in Va for Vancouver Magazine. She also said she had become an Anglican to keep away from, quote, the evil demons of the papacy. This was the person who was our prime minister for a period of time. Yet for a while, a lot of progressive conservatives, and I was in the party at the time, we looked away from a lot of this. We basically thought that, well, look, you know, we've obviously fallen in support. Brian Mulroney had struggled a bit in his second term in office. There were a lot of things going on. You know, the Airbus scandal and Karl Heinz Schreiber was starting to just sort of appear at that point. So they were looking for something different. So they thought they could rebuild a Canadianized version of Margaret Thatcher, who was an extremely successful prime minister in the U.K., certainly far more right-leaning than Kim Campbell would be on her best day. But maybe that Campbell can actually work like this, a strong, powerful female leader. We would become a recognized, you know, a pr progressive-type leader in the country by electing a, pr a female prime minister. There never had been a female president in the United States. There still hasn't been to this day. So we were certainly way ahead of them. And when you look at her 
rise for the first little while, especially up to the famous Canada Day celebrations in Ottawa, that moment she was on the podium and spoke and came off, her popularity rating personally was, I'm not sitting in front of a bill, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 65 percent. It was a number that was so extraordinary that it looked like everything was coming together nicely. Unfortunately, when she started to open her mouth and she started to make some of the comments that you and I talked about and others, because that's only just a, a little tip of the iceberg in terms of what she said, oh, yeah. she turned out to be the biggest disaster this party or the old progressive conservative party could ever have. Some people used to say privately, and it's not nice the way they did it, but I remember this line, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that Brian Mulroney, in his second term, may have lost the election just because of all the things that were happening with him and his government, but it was Kim Campbell who lost the progressive conservatives, their party status. And that is 100% true. And it's still followed from that, which is why, you know, we've talked about this in the past when we do our show with Alex Pearson on Thursdays on our sister station, 640, that... uh, Peter McKay looks attractive to an awful lot of people right now for that same reason. You know, okay, there was Stephen Harper and there was Andrew Scheer. Maybe the party's too Western-centric. Maybe we need somebody from the Maritimes. Uh, he's a former leader of the conservative, progressive conservative party, as they right, were back the then. One, in fact. But he's got baggage too, Michael. Immense. And, that, and you know, it's interesting. What happens is, and, and you know this, you've been around politics a long time, Bill, more, even more than I have. Unfortunately, what happens is people have very short memories. They somehow forget all these things that happened before. Like, for example, Peter McKay, in his early days in politics, was very, very critical of the old Reform Party and the old Canadian Alliance. But when he signed the deal with Stephen Harper in December 2003 to merge his, his old PC party with the Canadian Alliance. Somehow all these things over the next few years just disappeared. Oh, it was just the heat of battle. People didn't mean it. They say things that, you know, that they, you know, years later they look back on and say, ah, I was just, you know, it was just caught up in a moment that time. It's nice to say, but we remember a lot of it. And, look, Peter McKay on a one-on-one basis is a nice guy, Bill. I've met him, but I've known him also a long time, and I know that ideologically, and it's, it's not a big secret, he's very, very different than what a Stephen Harper represented for Canada and for the Conservative Party. He's different than Andrew Scheer and what he represented for the Conservative Party. Peter McKay tends to be a red Tory for the most part, which and a red Tory is a left-leaning conservative. Now, if people come back and say, but Peter McKay has strongly believed in fiscal issues, the free market, etc., absolutely. And, and by, for economic issues, McKay has, for the most part, been on side. As well, his opposition to the gun registry is on the record. I mean, he's certainly taken positions and stances that a lot of people are very happy with. But on the other hand, on social issues, if you go back and look at his record, and maybe one day I'll dredge up all the material I have on him <laughs> and create something, because there's a boatload. I, people have really forgot about all this. Well, there's and, some, Michael, there's still some people that hold a grudge against him for selling out the party. Yes, uh, you exactly. Know, Dave, and, and it's not just David Archer. With David Orchard. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. You're right, but again, you know, they say time heals all wounds, and I think a lot of people are starting to ignore this or avoid this because they sense that McKay's name, his experience, and his, and his family's experience, his father was a cabinet minister for, um, I believe, Brian Mulroney, um, all that put together 
people believe that Peter McKay can show a new face for the Conservative Party, that he can blend the, the blue Tory or right-leaning prepositions with the red Tory or left-leaning prepositions and create some sort of middle-of-the-road ideology or Tory centrism, if you will, that will guide the party through it. And look, maybe he will be successful at it. I don't know. But, and the way things are going, he certainly has an enormous amount of support and I think he's discouraging a lot of candidates from possibly throwing their hats in the ring. But the big thing with my piece, briefly, Bill, was that, I mean, I don't think it's good for the party or the democratic process to not have people throw their hats in the ring, because we saw what happened with Kim Campbell and how disastrous that was for a conservative-type party and a conservative-type leader. No one is suggesting Peter McKay is Kim Campbell. And anyone who thinks I made that correlation or that I'm suggesting that, it would be ludicrous. The, the two people are completely different, and McKay is a far superior politician than Campbell would ever be. We both know that. Mm-hmm. But, but realistically, though, if this is another near coronation or people are discouraged from running because they basically see everyone moving behind one candidate, that is disastrous for the party, and they don't need something like that, even if McKay would handle situations much differently than Kim Campbell ever would. Michael, i got about a minute left here. I, based on, on what you wrote in the piece in our conversation here, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning here, it, this, this is a, a race right now that's been known for the people that have st- said no thanks to it. Uh, Rana Ambrose, John Baird, Pierre Polivare, all down the list. Is anybody yep. of any consequence, anybody besides O'Toole, going to challenge McKay before the, the end of this month? Well, it's an interesting question. People were also looking to Candace Bergen. She's decided yeah. not to run. Michelle Rempel is still making a decision. I, I don't know if she's going to do it. She has things to deal with herself. John Williamson is actually considering doing it, and John has been around the circuit quite a bit. He was on the National Post editorial board. He was, he was with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, mm-hmm. and he's been a politician for quite a while. Known him many years, good small-c conservative. He would at least add something interesting to it, which I think would be exciting, um, I don't know, Bill. I don't know if a lot of people are going to do it. And that's why I see the parallels between what happened with Campbell and what happened with McKay, because you sort of see that pattern growing again. But look, not to be a broken record, there's a few weeks to go before the application deadline. There's a few months to go before the leadership race is over. I, I strongly encourage conservatives, prominent conservatives with good names, good reputations, excellent careers, and who believe that they have a vision for the Conservative Party of Canada that would be beneficial to its future and hopefully to the next election, I hope they jump in because they really, truly need to have more people. Yeah, it's a good read. I think it's still up on the uh, Toronto Star webpage. You can check it out a little bit later on or just Google it. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. My pleasure. Speak to you later this week. You betcha. Michael Tobe uh, with his piece, uh, The Near Coronation of Peter McKay Could Be Disastrous. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.